Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Bhavan Shah is a behavioural optometrist and visual performance specialist with over 22 years experience. He's a passionate technophile and is co-founder and chief optometric officer of a startup in visual technologies. He specialises in many disciplines within optometry, including children's vision and visual performance, especially for reading and learning. This includes focusing, eye movements and tracking difficulties. He also specialises in reading and learning difficulties and is an accredited behavioural optometrist. He does cataract assessment and glaucoma referral refinement, visual performance for computer use, binocular vision difficulties including convergence insufficiency, dry eye examinations and blepharitis investigation. So welcome to the Get a Grip podcast. My interviewee today is Bhavan Shah. How are you, Bhavan? Very well, thank you. Lovely to, lovely to speak to you. And can I, I just want to sort of, I'm sure, I would suggest probably no one listening to this has heard of behavioural optometry. <laughs> it's quite a specialism, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it is something that there is a well-known. We, we don't advertise ourselves enough as we should do as well. But it's something that is really crucial to to learning, um, crucial to understanding the way that, that our eyes work. And for so many things, for, for how children read, how children learn, and for adults as well, how they perform at work, sports people, so much is visual-based. And you know, our, our, our visual system uh, is it's amazing. It takes in so much information and it can picture things. You, you can, you know, our, our, our listeners can imagine me uh, sitting in my, my practice but they could even imagine me sitting on a beach. You know, the, the, the visual system is able to create those based on all the information that we receive. And a little bit of a, an, an analogy about what behavioral optometry is like. If you imagine uh, there's a, a group of kids who are running a race, you know, you'll get one, one child who will win the race, one at the end, everybody else will be in the middle. So a traditional optometrist, what they would do, you know, if, if a child's not running so well, they'd provide a new pair of trainers. A new pair of trainers is not going to help that child win the race. It's more of a question of understanding how the whole system works and how they, for example, the, how the, the legs are working, how the stamina is, how the coordination. And behavioural optometrists do the same kind of thing with eyes and vision. So, so just to differentiate, I know these are very naive questions from me, but what is the difference between your regular optician and a behavioural optometrist? So a, a traditional kind of optician or optometrist, they're, they're kind of trained to check the eyes for sight. So can person read the letters on the chart can the child read the letters and do they need glasses for that purpose and what behavior optometrist does will look a lot more in depth at the whole visual system for example for reading there are something like about 20 different skills visual skills that are needed for someone to read but for a regular optometrist they would look at about maybe three or four of those 
but a behavioral optometrist would look at all the other skills you know can can we keep the focus and keep can we keep the attention on the page long enough can the brain process that information can it make sense of the words so so we look at all of those elements and it's such an important, desperately important area for people to know about because so many parents, teachers um, are, are concerned about how children are progressing with their reading. And perhaps this this relationship between the eye and the brain and the page is often really not understood well enough. I, I completely agree. I think that there is no understanding of it um, from even from our profession as well. How I first got into behavioural optometry, I had a, a child who'd come to see me because they were complaining that they couldn't see the board and they couldn't see the words. But when I tested them, they're actually able to read all the letters on the chart. So normally I would have said, right, everything's fine. But actually when you start asking questions and thinking more about it, then there is a lot more going on there. And then it's kind of understanding what's happening to the child. And, and say something like about uh, 25% of, of kids would have some kind of difficulty that, that's linked to their vision. So it's quite a, quite a big number. And there, despite it being such a critical area, there are only 65 behavioural optometrists in the UK. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and I think maybe only 50 of them are practising. So there, there's certainly a huge shortage. Now, some of your specialism, so it's it's really around the visual system and how it impacts a child's ability to learn, as you've just mentioned. Mm. So just imagine, you know, you're, some of the most, I want to hear about the most common issues that you come across that might perhaps occur in a classroom and how they may be perhaps seen as being something else, but in your experience would be the sort of the three or five things that a teacher should look out for. Yeah, so some of the, the, the kind of very, very typical classic signs, when a child is reading, they're much more likely to miss words or, or skip lines. And this particularly happens a lot after the age of seven, eight, uh, year three, when the, the kind of understanding of reading goes more towards reading for meaning. Children after that point, the ones who are missing words, are much more likely to, be, to have some kind of difficulty in, in, in processing the reading information. They might find that they have to use their finger to be able to read, to keep, and that kind of forces their, their eyes on the page. Some of them may complain that the words are blurry, that the words are either moving or they're getting double vision. But a good 60% of the kids actually get, have these symptoms but, but won't complain about them. Those are the kind of two most, most typical things that, that, that I would see. And... and Often you'll find that uh, a child can uh, speak very well verbally, they can be very articulate, but it, it doesn't show through on their work, especially on their, their written work. Their, their comprehension's not going to be so good as we'd expect. Their ideas don't seem to uh, reflect on the page. And it sounds like in many situations like that, a teacher may automatically or a parent consider that the child has dyslexia. That's the first thing that will come to a parent's mind. So what is the... Are you describing dyslexia there or are you saying that actually that may be the point at which people will refer on to you, but actually it isn't dyslexia at all? Yeah, so there, there, is, a, there is a huge overlap here because actually some of the symptoms and some of the issues are the same. Uh, so, and, and in fact, with some of these visual issues, they're much more common in dyslexia as well. They're, they're not dyslexia as such, but they're much more likely to happen to, to, to kids with dyslexia. So either way, we would need to check out the visual system first. In fact, the BDA, the, the British Dyslexia Association, recommend that kids see a behavioural optometrist first so we, we can eliminate these issues 
before actually having a diagnosis of, of dyslexia. Who is it that refers children to you, given the lack of knowledge about the area of behavioural optometry? So, so it, it tends to be professionals such as educational psychologists or dyslexia uh, assessors, some SENCOs, uh, the, the special needs coordinators in the school. Some of them are aware of them, depends on on, on the individual, if they if they if they actually come across it and, and they kind of have, have an understanding of, of how the visual system affects learning, but there isn't enough education. I think I think they in schools and senkos particularly need to have more knowledge and information about where it could be a visual issue. And is there any what's the sort of relationship between what you do and say the point at which a parent might bring a child automatically to the GP and say I'm worried about their eyesight? Um, which may happen, would would a GP typically know about behavioural optometry? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, probably not. Very, very few GP. I mean, they they would probably struggle with a child with dyslexia as well, knowing what to do. So, so, so normally, some of these referrals may may start from the school. So, the school may refer for an educational psychologist for an assessment for dyslexia, and then it would fall into the, the kind of system where actually maybe we should be looking at other things, but it would normally go via one of those professionals rather than a GP or some of the teachers sometimes. So if a parent's listening or, or they've, you know, they recognise some of the issues that their child may be having in the classroom with reading, processing what they're reading, etc., when you say you explore the visual system with those children clients, what is it that that exam or assessment is like? What happens to the child in that chair? It's quite a, an in-depth assessment and kind of investigation of their, of their visual system. So firstly, we would be seeing how well they can maintain their focus. Can they, are they able to keep their eyes focused on a page? For the example, for the, the, the children running a race, you know, are they able to, to maintain the same speed? Can they run? Maybe they get tired after 20 metres as opposed to running 100 metres. So we would have a special baseline that we can we can see whether a child, what child should be able to read or what, how long they can keep their eyes focused. We would check other, other elements as well, that, such as is their working memory good? Are they able to hold the information? Can they, can they have a good visualisation? Are they able to picture what they're reading well? So it, it takes about an hour and a half to two hours to go through an assessment. We take little breaks in between and, and, and try and gear it to the, to the, the level of the child. Each child's different, uh, they perform differently, but we, we get a good idea of their visual profile and how they're learning, how they're using their eyes, and areas where they're, they're not uh, using their eyes as well as they could be, that we can work on those, on those areas. And is behavioural optometry, if you like, only for children who are experiencing those sorts of problems and issues, or is it something every child ideally would have access to to understand their visual profile? Does that make sense? Is is there is does it does it have a role in sustaining eye health, if you like, for children? I mean, if, if a child is performing quite well, it's not going to be so much of a of a problem because we know that everything's everything's working okay. I mean, I, I think if a child with difficulties, it's going to be much more important for for those for kids where they're already performing well. I think it's it's just a general it's a case of doing activities and doing kind of visual tasks that you know getting outdoors and playing sports those kind of things are going to be much more important. I mean obviously all all children should be having eye tests regularly anyway because we can we can sometimes find that they they have difficulties that they they haven't even realized or haven't reported. But I think the from a behavioral point of view I think those where 
they're not performing so well, it's going to be it'll be uh, much more important. The word behavioural in 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 the phrase behavioural optometry, you know, immediately a parent would think that it relates to the child's behaviour. But are you talking about the behaviour of the eye or the visual system? Yes, yeah, it's 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 a funny name. I think it it, it we kind of work on a good way of of describing what we do. It's it's kind of it is the the, the behaviour of the visual system and 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 how it, how someone performs based on on their visual system. Now, if you identify the issues that you've described, Bavan, you know, to someone like me who knows nothing about this area, I would think, how on earth are you going to be able to help that child, you know, read more effectively um, just by understanding, you know, the things that you've described? So what is the sort of the prescription or what is it that the intervention, what, what does it look like? So once we've identified the areas where things aren't working well, we do what's called vision therapy. So it's kind of exercises and a therapy program kind of to improve those limits. So we've, we've tested the limits of the vision and we found what areas where things aren't working within limits. So we, we try and push those boundaries. So some of it, say, for example, if it's focusing, we would get the child doing focusing exercises or, or uh, kind of keeping their eyes working on the page. We might get them to help move their eyes better. Uh, often there's a, there's a difficulty where the eyes don't work well together. That, that's a very common common problem. It's called convergence insufficiency. So basically the, the eyes converge to work together, but there's not enough kind of stamina to keep them working on the page. Uh, so then they, they lose coordination, they, they lose words. So we give exercises to try and improve that, that convergence. And presumably, I think it's, you know, it's sad to read when I read about your area that just the act of reading can become terribly frustrating for children. And they may, you know, without having vision therapy, they might feel, you know, horrible in terms of having visually induced headaches or they might feel, you know, and that's really worrying, isn't it? Because it'll really be off-putting in terms of learning. That's right. I mean, that's really what I hate to A child who's kind of either, either lost confidence or they just want to avoid reading. Uh, it, it, it is heartbreaking to see where, where it's something... Um, we can have some impact on. And Bavan, how how long does the uh, you know how long does it take to see sort of success um, in uh, across those sorts of interventions? It varies from child to child. It uh, depends on if there's other difficulties. Some, I mean, a lot of kids with with other difficulties as well. Say if they're on on the spectrum or if they have uh, dyslexia as well. So somewhere between a few months to maybe about a year. I mean, we're, we're talking about making a, a kind of a fundamental change in this in, the, in this this child. You know, if you, if you go to the gym, if you go once or twice, you're not going to have any impact. You know, if, if you go to the gym regularly, two months, three months, and then look back, then, then you notice actually that there is an improvement. And it's a similar kind of process. So, I mean, no, normally within a few months, we start getting kind of noticeable differences. And I mean, the, the, the soonest we've, we've had a child, maybe between about four months, We've had a, an impact where uh, there, was, there was a mother of a child who, after three months, said that there's an 11 year old uh, who, who picked up an 800 page book. And she'd never, up until then, she'd only read books that were 200 pages. So that's, that's really kind of great to hear when, when you know that they've, they've kind of done the exercises and they've, they've naturally improved and progressed. And you've mentioned uh, sport um, and also the application of, of this area to adults. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah, so so in fact, we've we've recently been seeing an increasing number of of adults who've who've been diagnosed with dyslexia. Say, uh, where we've had um, there was one the young man and he was in it on his second degree and, and found it was a little bit hard for him. 
when he had an assessment, he got diagnosed with dyslexia. So we were working with him to improve the way his eyes were working together. Uh, and there was, there was a young lady who she'd found that she was working with spreadsheets. She was in her, her late 20s. And again, she got she found out she had she was dyslexic. She knew there was something not right all this time, but uh, when she had a diagnosis, and then I was working with her with, with coordination of her eyes, and then she realised actually she could be doing a job that's much better than what she was doing. Actually, she actually progressed in her, in her career within within a few months. And, and sports wise, a lot of the way we take in information is either visual or visual spatial, so it, it can help people who play sports if they're. Uh, especially ball games, fast-moving games where we can help you know, people playing tennis or playing for all sorts of sports. Brilliant. I'm just thinking about how bad my tennis game is. Maybe I should get myself down there. <laughs> yeah, 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 we can, uh, we can yeah. help on all yeah. of those things. Would you say, are there clients who sort of stick, child clients who sort of stick in your mind as like, what are the sort of the, the proudest stories perhaps you have in your practice? You know, where it's really, I'm very interested in, in ch- how children's confidence can be built through this kind of intervention. Hmm. Uh, we've got so many stories. So I mean, the one I told you earlier, the um, the, the young girl who, whether the, the mum, uh, called me and, and let me know that she'd picked up an 800-page book at the age of 11, where she hadn't read anything that was more than 200 pages before that. And, you know, that that was great to hear. There's there's uh, recently where uh, when I when I spoke to the parent that the, the after about two months the uh, the dance teacher uh, had asked the parents uh, had they been doing anything because her coordination physical coordination had improved so much during her dancing lessons because we we'll often physical coordination is linked very closely to vision. So I'd actually worked on her coordination as well as her, her vision as well. That's very nice. Yes, um, that's lovely to hear, isn't it? And mm. and is there a sort of an optimal age where you mentioned seven, year three, you might see the emergence of some of these issues. But is there sort of an age where you've mentioned you work with adults, but is there is there anything about age ranges that you think you'd like people to know about? You know, for example, could people spot these issues much earlier than seven, or is there something particular to adolescence? Or yeah, up until about six, seven, we, we have an idea that something's not maybe an issue. I'd like to wait till after seven or eight just to see if these things improve naturally. But normally, we have a few indicators that things aren't aren't working as well. They you know, they may be the complaining about their their vision or seeing double or seeing seeing blurry or they they're not performing as well as they are compared to the other kids we may see kids a little bit earlier it, it, it tends to be more if i if or with, with the parents if we felt that, that things aren't working so well and and i've seen things that actually yeah, we, we can start working sooner or we can start working at an earlier age uh, once they go past seven and eight they, they kind of understand the process of of, of how that they need to help their eyes as well because it is it, it's more therapy as well as vision so you know that they have an understanding of of, of how they need to improve, which I think in, in some ways helps their mindset as well, that, that they know that if things aren't working well, we can do this, we can try something new and we can build on things. So that's why I find that that age is a, is a good age to start. Often I'll, I'll see kids when they've just gone to senior school because suddenly the work has just ramped up from the, the stages of the, the level required at primary school to when they've gone to senior school is, is such a big jump that suddenly where they've managed to, to cope, especially if they're very bright, they can keep up at 
primary school, but when they've gone to senior school, then, then suddenly the, those strategies start start breaking down. So I tend to see a lot, lot more kids at that time as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. That transition to more work sort of highlights the issue, doesn't it? Bevan, when you've been speaking, I've been thinking about my children who love reading on their Kindles. And reading on a screen seems to be very in vogue uh, at the moment. And of course, it brings us to the perennial question of the effect of screens. Now, just to share what I know about the research evidence around screen time is really it's not as sort of um, uh, harmful, perhaps, as parents think. However, the evidence does point to effect on posture and eyesight if children are persistently using that a screen, say, for three hours a day, for example. So what is it that you, if you were the parent like me, of children using Kindles, reading on a screen, what are the things we need to look out for? Okay, so there's, I mean, there's, there's a whole, it's a whole minefield with, with screen time at the moment. I think it's the biggest factor that, that, that that's, that's kind of uh, an influence and a worry as well at the same time. Technology itself, uh, it, it's a huge enabler and uh, you know, there's so many positives to the technology, and also the, the actual technology is here to stay. It's not going to change. If anything, as you know, the next ten years, twenty years, it's going to just get more. That's the, the kind of trend we've seen over the last fifty years, and it's not and it's accelerating. And it's a question of kind of balancing out what the good elements and the the, the bad elements. And I mean, I, I can I can go through a little bit about each each section because actually each each kind of band have their own kind of issues around around screen time both from a, a visual point of view and just from a general and uh, from a learning point of view as well so the, the, the kind of very younger ones the 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 age kind of year to uh, zero to three they are the biggest risk of having developmental difficulties with after using screens they're kind of still learning the world and in fact handling things using their using their hands moving around is how we learn our visual system and how our brain develops uh, the, the kind of sense of where we are and, and, and how we get our movement and some of the thinking skills. So, so screens can hinder that. They can hinder the, the, the kind of pincer movement. And, and what happens is what they see on the screen doesn't quite translate to the real world. So they, you know, they, they can't understand what 3D space when they, they, they're just looking at screens and, and how things relate to each other. And, and, and also the, 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 the kind of learning that they, they get from the screen, unless there's a parent there, and the parent is working with um, like an educational app, and, and and just building a little bit of time in there while they're interacting with the child. Um, and they found that that actually can be helpful in in small amounts. And then as, as we get a little bit a little bit older, we tend to get difficulties with attention because these screens kind of demand so much attention that the kids uh, and even affects adults. They can't regulate their own attention and their own their own visual attention so that's why it's very important to kind of teach them that these are the kind of difficulties that can happen from using screens and that it should be part of a uh, just a kind of balanced activities that, uh, that, that that everybody does so taking regular breaks uh, from screens is just oh, good it's just yeah. good uh, practice for adults and children and thinking about how we sit yeah. at a computer and moving around etc cetera, etc cetera, when you've been on it for a little bit of a while what about assistive technologies for children, perhaps who've got ADHD? I read about some, you know, computer technology, screen-based activities and apps that can really actually enable children to learn yeah. to focus. Can you say a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. So there is there is evidence that now that, that shows actually in, in doses that it, in fact it can be very helpful that uh, some of the learning experiences can be quite positive. They're able to kind of learn. They they, they find that somewhere between uh, one to two hours a day should be the limit of this. But there's quite a few apps and quite a few educational programs that uh, improve learning, improve language. Some of them are even more enhanced if the parent or the teacher is involved in the process at the same time as well. So it becomes like a kind of a multi-billion kind of uh, effort for learning as well. And Bavin, if you had to sort of highlight, even as a parent, you know, yourself, what do you think are the, your favourite apps that you feel or programmes on the computer or whatever that are the iPad that are beneficial for children, that you're happy to advocate and suggest to parents are good for children? Actually, from, from, from that point of view, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on knowing which ones are the, the best apps. I know that there's a few that, that are, are linked with the, the ones the school provide or offer. There's a few maths-based ones like uh, uh, mathematics and one of the, the, the kind of maths learning. Uh, there's nothing specifically that I would say was uh, that I could, could say, yes, you should be, be using that one. But I think there are there's so many out there and almost every day I seem to hear about some other new ones. I haven't tried them out myself, so it's difficult for me to say this one over, over the other. And are there any specific apps, say, for, for people listening who have children with ADHD or, that, or particular concentration difficulties that you would be happy to recommend? Oh, there's, there's so many. There's nothing I could say that or I, I think someone should recommend that. I could recommend that specifically, actually. I think it may be worth doing some investigation on that one. That's great. Okay. And and in terms of, you know, if people want to learn more about behavioural optometry, your website is very good. I've seen lots of lovely testimonies from children on it as well, which is very nice. Thank you. But can you just you. highlight uh, what that is, please, your website and how people can get in touch with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So my website is www.centralvisionopticians.co.uk. So they can they can contact me through the website or my email is info at central dot vision. So they can send me some information on there, and I'll be happy to uh, to take emails or, or calls if, if uh, people have any questions about the, the kind of learning process. And Bavin, uh, given there's so few behavioural optometrists, I mean, how difficult is it to find one? You know, if if you're not located in someone's yeah. area, how do people go about finding one? So so so, so we have an association. Um, the, the British, British Association of Behavioural Optometrists, who have been as an association since the 70s, so it, it's quite a long-standing association. Uh, the website is babo.co.uk. That's b-a-b-o.co.uk. And is there anywhere to? I know that some of the hot topics, say in your area, another one we haven't discussed would be short-sightedness, which I think you've mm-hmm. mentioned is is on the rise. You know, where can we yeah. keep in touch with your thinking and you know the hot topics in this area, and just you know something interesting to read about, you know, that might trigger some interest or resonate with parents listening. So they they can um, uh, follow me on my my Facebook page. Uh, which is Central Vision Opticians, or on Instagram uh, with the same name. So, so I tend to put um, uh, recently we're probably more on the Instagram page as it's against quick visual uh, information, and on the website I, I, I tend to update it with uh, the kind of latest information as well. And lovely, so people can ask questions via Facebook. I'm mm-hmm. sure if they're not quite sure, yeah. yeah. 
And you mentioned earlier that mostly your referrals come from professionals, but it's perfectly possible for a parent to pick up the phone and book an appointment for their child yeah. with you directly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so actually uh, some parents have kind of they've realised that something's happened. They've, they've kind of Googled the, these are the difficulties that my child is having and they've been, been directed to my website. And then, you know, I'll have a chat with them over the phone first and just see what kind of difficulties they're having. And if, if it would help to have an assessment, then uh, then, uh, then I can, they, they can come and contact me directly. And Bavin, as a sort of a last question, what are the sort of things within your work that keep you awake at night? What are you worried about in terms of children's visual systems or how they learn their memory, what's going on in schools? Is there anything that worries you? The one thing is probably digital devices. I think that, that that's going to be the, the, the kind of hugest area which is going to have an impact on learning. And I think kids don't spend enough time outdoors. I, 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 kind of, I, I think that that's something really that, that, that needs to be promoted, just getting out, doing physical activities. Because I think there's kind of the, the, the kids where they're not learning the, those kind of creative elements. They're not, they're not kind of getting their hands in there and doing things physically. And I think that, that that could affect their futures. You know, in, in, in work in the future, we're going to need adults who can who have good problem-solving abilities, have good critical thinking abilities and communication. Um, all of those things are going to be important. And building those into the children from a very early age, I think it's going to be really, really important for them in the future. And I suppose just thinking about problem solving, which, as you say, is so critical for cognitive health that yeah. really and as you you know, imagine a child doing a physical puzzle. And as you say, all of the it uses their entire visual system and their, you know, their all their yeah. finger control and physical dexterity. And that's just, if they're able yeah. to just go on the iPad and play a game, it's really not equivalent. It's not the same. No, no, it, it's got some elements, but it's just. It's just not the same as kind of seeing what would happen if you turn a shape over in one direction than the other and handling it. Our, our brain takes in information, visual information through our hands, even though it's, it doesn't sound, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but, but actually holding something teaches you of your visual system how, how things work and how things relate to each other. So being physical is really, really important. Well, that, you know, that um, worry or concern that children are not spending enough time outside or doing creative physical activities like that, it's echoed in most of the interviews I've done across many different disciplines. So I think that's something Mm -hmm. we can all agree on. Well, listen, Bavin, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will, as always, uh, create the notes that accompany this podcast that everybody can download, which will be available on my website. So thank you so much, Bavin Shah, for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.